Welcome to Life U 2021 through 2022. In this season of change and challenge, the Spirit is calling us to explore four life-giving practices, fervent prayer and worship, tending to scripture, telling our faith stories, and serving the neighbor with courage and generosity. We hope that you will join us on Wednesday evenings for a meal, a dynamic TED-style talk, and opportunities for conversation. For more information, visit our website at www.standrews.org forward slash life you. And now you'll have an opportunity to hear last week's talk. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Life You. It is so good to be gathered with you. I'm Deacon Steph Anderson, and we're thrilled uh, for those of you here in person, and of course, those of you joining us online on this freezing cold Wednesday evening. We're glad to be with you. I am so excited to introduce to you a friend of mine who's here um, as our Life Talk speaker this evening. But before I do that, as we continue in our month of January, telling our stories of faith authentically and compellingly, let's gather our hearts in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. God of the ages, our stories and our pasts are yours. And we commend our futures to you as we listen for your voice in our lives and in our hearts. Give us courage and clarity to tell our stories so that the whole world might know the healing power of your love. In your good and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Like I said, I am introducing to you a friend of mine, Pastor Andrea Roski Metcalf. I'm going to give you a little introduction to who she is. She's a pastor and writer and storyteller. She's a three-time Twin Cities Moth Story Slam champion, and she's the winner of the 2017 Twin Cities Moth Grand Slam, which I got to watch her win at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. She's the founder of the Playground Movement from her time as pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Apple Valley, and she now serves as the director of children's ministry at Christ Church Lutheran in Minneapolis. And lastly, her primary vocation these days, these unprecedented times, is driving her sixth and second graders to and from school as their ad hoc bus driver. So with no further ado, I introduce Pastor Andrea Roski metcalf It has only been uh, that in the last small handful of years uh, that I have thought of myself as a practitioner of the craft of storytelling. Uh, for, for the bulk of my life, for my entire childhood and most of my adulthood, I did not think of storytelling in this way as as a craft uh, to be pursued, as something to be practiced, as something that I could uh, pursue and get good at, as something that mattered in that way. I, I always just thought of it as something that was sort of in the air, right? Like that storytelling was just kind of in the air, was just kind of in the water. Um, I, I think I was aware that I used it 
in various ways here and there. And certainly I was aware that people around me used storytelling here and there um, for various reasons around me. But it, it took a really long time for me to understand it as a, as a craft that could be practiced. And I wish I could tell you that that realization came to me during seminary. Uh, like, that in the, in the system of education that, that creates religious leaders uh, in our country, in our culture, in our denomination, that this is something that they offer, right? Courses in the craft of storytelling. And I attended courses in, in a lot of different seminaries, and as far as I know, none of them offered anything even remotely close to that. Uh, what they did offer, along with a whole lot of other things, uh, was courses in liturgy. And if you, if you attend an ELCA seminary, a Lutheran seminary, then in your course on liturgy, you are taught about the four parts of the order of worship, right? The four parts of the liturgy. You have the gathering, you have the word, you have meal, and you have sending. And, and maybe these are easy to understand, but I'm just going to go through them to make sure we're all on the same page. The gathering, if we, if we use a traditional Lutheran worship service, like you would find in the hymnal as an example, then the gathering part would be uh, the prelude and the opening hymn and the thanksgiving for baptism and maybe the confession and forgiveness and the Kyrie, all that stuff that you do at the beginning, right, that kind of settles you into the space. And then you move to the word. And the word in Lutheran liturgy encompasses everything that has to do with scripture, right? Like everything that's in this book uh, is part of word. So all the different readings for the day, uh, the Old Testament reading, the New Testament reading, the Psalm, the gospel, that's all part of the word part. But so is the sermon or the homily or whatever it is that's reflecting on those readings. Like that's all encompassed in the word portion of the liturgy. And then you move to meal, which is the, the sacrament of Holy Communion, and, and all the parts and pieces that happen before that and after that. All of that together is meal. And then you have the sending, which is basically what it sounds like, right? It's the, it's the closing hymn. It's the words of benediction and blessing. It's the postlude. It's the, the thing that sends you out the door. So that's what you learn about liturgy, one of the things you learn about liturgy at a Lutheran seminary. And I am a Lutheran pastor, but I did not graduate from a Lutheran seminary. Uh, I graduated from Union Theological Seminary in New York, which is, uh, it's a Christian seminary, but sort of nominally so. Uh, and I, I mean, it, it is a Christian seminary. I say that because a lot of the faculty and students are not Christian. And so the curriculum in that place reflects that fact. So, so the worship course that I took at Union uh, talked about the same kind of thing, liturgy, right? The, the sort of order of worship, um, but in a more expansive way. I learned about uh, the five parts rather than the four parts uh, of any human ritual, right? So these five parts can be applied to Christian liturgy, to, to the order of worship, but they also, you can find all five of these parts in just about every single human ritual that you can conjure up, right? Uh, Christian or from another religious tradition, religious or secular, uh, current, modern day, or ancient ritual, they all have these five 
pieces. Again, we start with gathering. Uh, and, and when we're talking about this more expansive idea of, of ritual, the gathering is everything from how did you even know that this thing was happening, right? Like what did the invitation look like? Uh, when you arrived, what did the space look like? Who met you, uh, as, you as you arrived? What did, they, did they hand you anything? Did they give you something to eat? Did they give you something to read? Uh, if they gave you something to read, could you understand what it meant? Um, how did you know when the thing was actually starting, right? How did you know it had begun and what kinds of words of welcome or gestures were, were offered to you? Um, so that's the gathering. And then the next part is the remembering. And the remembering is the storytelling part. So we're going to come back to that, right? But, but the remembering is, is all of the stories that matter to us as a community. And in whatever ritual we're creating, like what are the stories that ground us? And in our Christian tradition, like these, the Bible, right, the, the Christian scriptures, like that's the remembering part. It's when we go through those readings uh, in the course of the service. And then the part after the remembering is the imagining. Uh, and I love that word, right? And, and in Christian worship, the imagining is actually the sermon part or the homily or whatever that piece is. Uh, so you're taking the remembering, you're taking the stories that sort of ground you as a community, and then you're doing something with it. You're imagining something new. You're saying, what, how, do, how do these stories uh, combined with what's actually happening here and now in this time and place, like where does that take us? And how should that move us forward? That's the imagining part. And then you have the doing, uh, and this is sort of sprinkled throughout, right? The doing in in sort of this ritual understanding, is anything that involves all of the people assembled. Um, in, a, in a Christian worship service, in a Lutheran worship service, which, which is maybe what we're most, most familiar with, um, the doing is everything from congregational singing to the celebration of baptism to the giving and receiving of, of the sacrament of Holy Communion. Um, it's the offering, right? Like putting something in the plate. It's the sharing of the peace. It's all of these things that we do together as a community. And then the sending is, again, much like it sounds. Like how do you, how do you know when the thing is over? Uh, what's the indication that, that, that it's over? Um, when you leave, how do you leave? How do you feel as you, as you exit this place? How are you changed? Like does it even matter that you came? Uh, what how has your outlook changed because you have been a part of this experience? So I grew up here in the Twin Cities. I grew up ELCA Lutheran, and I grew up going to church every week uh, under duress often, but every week. I was not interested in being a pastor. Like, that was not on my radar. And this notion of, of being a practitioner of the craft of storytelling was definitely not a very hard. But because you know those two things about me, you might think to yourself, oh, I bet her favorite part of the liturgy when she was a kid was the remembering part, right? Because that's the story. Like, that's the story part of worship. And you would be wrong. Um, the story part of worship for me was, like, dead last in terms of things that were exciting. And uh, you don't have to sort of give it away if you're a member of this congregation and you don't want this to get awkward. Uh, but in general, right, in sort of mainline Christian worship, um, 
the remembering part, the readings part, often goes like this. Uh, We find the person in the congregation with the least amount of personality uh, who is capable of reading but without any like inflection at all, right? The most monotone person we can find. And we put them in the, in the podium with this really exciting, captivating story that really matters to us. Uh, and we ask them to read it as though they're reading the phone book and as if they don't have a microphone in front of their face and there's not a whole crowd of people here to listen to them. That's how I experienced this part of worship as a kid. Like, it's the part where I started to read the back of the bulletin. It had nothing to do with me. It's like we used to read cereal boxes during breakfast before we had a smartphone to put in front of our face. Like, just anything with print to get me out of what's actually happening here. I hated that part. And so, but I didn't know any better. I didn't know that it could be different. I had no appreciation for the power of what the remembering uh, could be. And I wish I could say that it was seminary that taught me (laughs) the power of that part of of the liturgy, but it's not. Uh, Seminary did a little bit for me. It, It reminded me that these stories are part of an oral tradition, right? They were never really meant to be written down. They were certainly never meant to be just read off of the page. Uh, They were told as stories like this, right? From storyteller to to community um, around fires at night. Uh, They they were never intended to be sort of solidified on the page in this way. And so I, I gained some appreciation for that and certainly some appreciation for organizations that are trying to sort of revitalize that practice. Um, But that's as far as it went for me in seminary. My real appreciation for the remembering portion of the liturgy happened on a single night in Boston seven years ago. My husband Luke and I met Hannah and Jeff in seminary in New York, and we became friends, and we have vacationed together every year ever since. Um, our kids are about the same age, and so it works really well. We go different places, and it's, it's fine. Seven years ago, uh, our family was visiting Hannah and Jeff and their kids in Boston, where they lived. And we got there, and Jeff said uh, that he had bought tickets for the four adults to go to this storytelling show. Uh, it was a moth main stage show. I had no idea what that meant. I had never heard of the moth. I had never heard of the moth radio hour. I had never heard of the podcast. I didn't know anything about Some of you know a little bit about the moth. Um, I knew nothing. And I didn't understand what it was that he had bought tickets for. I was like, is it, is it like a play? And he was like, no, it's just storytelling. I didn't get it. But there was a babysitter involved, so like, I was game. So by the time it got to that night, uh, the, like, a virus had worked its way through our families. My husband and Jeff's wife were down for the count. They weren't going anywhere. So it was just Jeff and me. And we go. Uh, And we're in this huge theater in Boston. We have seats in the balcony. And we get our programs, and and all it is is five names and five short bios and a theme. And so so still, I was like, (laughs) I don't get it. Uh, And then the host came out and explained that there was this common theme for the night. I don't remember what it was, so it doesn't matter. 
I guess, uh, and that there would be five storytellers who would each tell a 10-minute story on this same theme. There would be three storytellers, intermission, two more. Okay. So the first woman stands up, and she is, uh, she's a Russian immigrant, and she tells a story about being on the jury uh, for a trial in this country. She walks into the courtroom. She knows nothing about this case, nothing about the defendant. And she realizes that the defendant is a young black man. Now, she is new here, but she's not that new, <laughs> right? She knows a little bit about uh, racial issues in this country. She knows about um, race and policing issues. She knows about race and the justice system. And she decides before she hears a single word of this trial that this young man is not going to be convicted for this crime. Like, if, if it's the last thing she does, that's what, she's going to make that happen. And she's trying to, like, telepathically communicate that to his mother. Like, I've got your back, I've got your son's back. So the whole trial happens. The jury goes, like, it's over now. The jury goes into the room where they're going to start deliberating. And the foreman says... Um, like, okay, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, obviously, but before we start, I just want to kind of take, take a poll. If you had to decide right now, is this guy guilty or not, what would you say? And they went around one by one by one with all the jurors, and every single one of them said not guilty, except for the Russian storyteller, who, th who thought this kid was guilty. Uh, she had been completely convinced uh, by this trial. And so she had done a complete 180 from where she had stood when she walked into the, courtyard, the courtroom in the first place. Um, and so her story was kind of, was about the sort of wrestling in her own brain and how she had to work all of that out as the jury deliberations went on. The second storyteller that night was an older man, a medical doctor. He told the story of experiencing his own brain aneurysm, knowing exactly what was happening in his body. Right? Most of us, whatever like medically is going on, like we just know something's not quite right, but we don't know how serious it is. We don't know what's happening. Uh, he knew exactly what was happening, and so he was that much more terrified. So he told the story of experiencing this sort of in real time, uh, knowing what is happening and just how close he is coming to a stroke or worse. Uh, he made the 911 call himself. Uh, and I'll never forget this phrase. He said to the operator, um, I'm calling to report that I am having a neurological event. We're like, that's how calm and collected and professional he was about it. He's having his own brain aneurysm, and he calls and he reports, I am having a neurological event. Uh, so his story is about experiencing this from this sort of insider perspective and, and how he survived that brain aneurysm. The third storyteller that night was a woman about my age. Uh, you know those email scams you get uh, from people pretending to be a Nigerian prince? Like, it's always a Nigerian prince, right? Uh, and all they need is your bank information so that they can deposit $2 million into your account. Okay. She responded to this. Um, and, and what's even funnier is, is that she knew the scam. Like, she was aware of this. She knew what this person was trying to do. But she was in a really tough spot 
mentally and emotionally, and she was really lonely. And she knew that if she responded to this guy, he was going to write back to her. And he did. And, and, and thus began this like weird, kind of twisted, strange relationship across continents and cultures uh, where she got really enmeshed with this person and with their family and, and financially, and it didn't end well. Um, but it was her, her story of this whole, like the drama, the, the sort of arc of this relationship. By the time intermission happened, after these three storytellers, uh, I was shaking in my chair. Like I was physically vibrating in my chair. I had not experienced um, just unadulterated raw human connection the way that I had with those three storytellers in, in that last bit of time. Uh, they, had, they had no agenda apart from standing on this bare stage with a single microphone and making themselves completely vulnerable and just saying, here's, here's a piece of me that I wish to share with you. That was it. That was the whole point. I had nothing in common with any of these people. I am not an immigrant. I have never been to Russia. I've never been on trial. I've never been on a jury. I have no medical background. I have never experienced a life-threatening medical emergency of my own. I have never answered an email scam from a Nigerian prince. The, the primary relationship in my life has never been with somebody on the computer. I had nothing in common with any of these people. And yet every single step and twist and turn in their story became mine. Like I was right there with them in that moment. I was right there shocking my own self with my verdict of this person's guilt. I, I was right there with them the whole way. And I was utterly changed. And I had been really skeptical, right? <laughs> so the lights go up after intermission, and, uh, and Jeff turns to me, and he's like, so that was kind of great. And I was trying to play it cool. Like, I haven't just had this, like, transformational experience. And I was like, yeah, that, that, yeah, that was kind of cool. Uh, and we made small talk for a little bit, and, uh, and, I, and I knew, I knew uh, that what these people had done on that stage, that I had to do it. Like, that that I was born to do it. I mean, that sounds so grandiose, but like that's how I felt. Um, but I was still trying not to, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to let on that this has happened. And, uh, and I turned to Jeff and, and I said, I mean, would you ever like wanna, I don't know, like do that? And, and keep in mind that my husband and I and Jeff and his wife are all clergy. Like, we're all pastors. It's our job every week to get up and preach, like, to large groups of people. It's our job to get up and teach. Uh, we, we are not afraid of public speaking, right? And, uh, and I say to Jeff, would you ever, like, want to do that? And he was like, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, would Hannah, like, do you think Hannah would want to do that? And he said, oh, no, Hannah would hate that. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, and, and then he said, well, would, would Luke, my husband, would Luke ever want to do that? No, 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 no. My husband is about as introverted as they come. Uh, he would never, ever do this by choice. And there was this just like long, weird pause. And then finally, Jeff understood the question he was supposed to ask. 
uh, which was, would, I mean, would you ever want to do something like this? Uh, and I don't even remember what I said, but I'm sure it was something like, yeah, I think I might die if I don't do something like that. Um, and just as an aside, like this is not my point at all, but if you ever have a moment like that, whether you're 13 or 35 or 89, like just go with it because it's like there's something there, right? Pay attention to that. Um, so when I got home that night, I went straight online to themoth.org to figure out how I could get on that stage and how I could learn to do what these people had done that night. And that's when I found out that most people who know anything about the moth know about the, the moth radio hour on Sundays, right? Where you turn on NPR and you hear people uh, telling stories. Um, or they know about the podcast where you can just download those same stories and listen to them whenever you want. But really the bulk of this organization uh, this storytelling organization is story slams, which happen all over the country, all the time, and it's amateur hour, right? Like, you don't have to get chosen for this. You just show up and put your name in a hat. So they publish a theme several weeks in advance, and if you want to tell a story on that theme, five minutes is the time limit, you, you buy a ticket to the event, and you show up, and you you, put your, you literally put your name in a hat. And they draw 10 names. It's a 10-story it's a show, and that's it. And there's usually more than 10 names in the hat. So you prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare, and you get really nervous, and then you might not even get drawn at all. Also, uh, they make it really awful by not drawing 10 names at the beginning, right? Like they draw a name, and you're on. And then you get a score. And then they draw the next name, and you're on and you get a score. So if your name is in the hat, like the whole night is terrible because you're just dying. Uh, but I wanted to do that. So the very next story slam that was here in the Twin Cities, I, I worked up a story. The theme was gift. I worked up a story and I went, my husband came with me and I put my name in the hat. Um, my husband describes that night as the worst date he has ever been on like with anyone, myself or anyone else, uh, because we're sitting here in this bar. We know no one else. My husband is the introvert of introverts, and we're making small talk, and then I'll be like, just give me five minutes. And then I just put my head down, because I need to run my story, and it's five minutes long. So I just put my head down, and he's like abandoned in this bar with strangers. So that was a little awkward. It was not his favorite. Um, after the fourth storyteller, I don't know how I knew, but the host pulled the name out of the bag, and I knew, I knew that it was mine. And my knees went cold, and I heard him say my name in some, like, muffled, faraway room. And, and somehow my legs carried me up to the stage, and I got up to the stage, and really the only thing I wanted to do in that moment was to create uh, the same kind of human connection that I had felt in that balcony, in that theater in Boston. That's all I wanted. And I got on that stage, and I, and I looked out uh, to the crowd, and I couldn't see any of them. I couldn't see anybody because of that damn spotlight, right? All there was was a bright light. There was no faces that I could see. But it was too late to back out, so I just started talking. And, uh, and I told this story about... Um, being an international exchange student at the University of the Philippines in Manila on 
And, I, and I'm going through kind of, I'm just kind of going through the motions because again, I can't see anybody. And then it didn't take long for me to realize that the, that the people who were out there, because I could hear them drawing in their breath at the right places, and I could hear them laughing in the right places, right? And so I knew without being able to see them, which I will say is not unlike the fact that you all are masked and I can't see your facial expressions for anything, uh, but I knew that they were right there with me right? That like this, the vulnerability that I was displaying on this stage and this gift that I was giving to people was being held and received and honored. Um, and it was absolutely addicting. It was, it was intoxicating in a way that I simply cannot describe to you. Um, I won the story slam that night, which is completely beside the point. Like, that's good. That's fine. That's fun. Uh, that wasn't the rush, right? The rush was this connection. Um, and, so, and so having been on both sides of that now, right, having been in the audience multiple times now, like receiving someone else's story as nothing more than gift, like there's no agenda, they're not trying to sell you anything. Uh, and then also being in the storyteller position, offering uh, someone a story as nothing more than gift. Um, I, I have a different kind of appreciation for the possibilities that exist in our liturgy and for the possibilities that exist in this remember portion of the liturgy. And I think, uh, you know, if we're, if we're talking particularly Christian worship, uh, there's certainly something that we can do with the stories that we have that are magnificent, Right? Like this book is filled with incredible stories uh, and we, we almost never do them justice when we communicate them in corporate worship. We just almost never do. Um, there, are, there are things that we can do to change that and things that we can, you know, our leadership teams and our congregations as a whole, we can, we can make some changes uh, to address that. But, but the thing that I want to impress upon you tonight is that um, the the stories in this book, like we, we consider them sacred, right? We call them our sacred stories. We call them our scripture. Uh, but they are no more sacred, those stories, uh, than the ones that exist in our own lives and the ones that exist in our own communities, whether those are worshiping communities or neighborhoods or nonprofits or extended families. Like we have stories that really matter, and that have the potential to ground us in the same kinds of ways that these are intended to in our liturgy. And the people in these stories are no less, are no more holy than you or I, right? We are created in the image of God in the very same way that the people are in this book. And our stories matter. And I, and I think right now, I'm, I'm really, right, and right now, I mean not just in this particular moment tonight, but in this particular moment culturally, um, as, we, as we continue to hope that we're on the tail end of this pandemic, right? Like we're in a really particular moment in time. Um, and, and, as, and as all kinds of different communities, we have gone through so much dismemberment. We have been dismembered in ways over the course of this thing uh, that we never could have imagined. We have, we have stayed apart in ways that we never dreamed would be necessary. And so we have been dismembered in different ways. Our communities have been. 
And so when I say the word remember, I'm not just talking about remember the stuff that happened back then that matters to us as a community. I'm talking about putting us back together, right? I'm talking about remembering our communities. And I think our instinct, if we're not intentional about it, our instinct is going to be to say, oh, before the pandemic, which is what, like January of 2020? Wow, January of 2020 was great, wasn't it? Like, that's the goal when we're done with this thing, is to get back to January of 2020. January of 2020 has sailed. Like, that ship has sailed. We are not, we are not getting back there. We're not getting through this thing unscathed. We will be different on the other side of it. Right? In the same way that in the sending part of the liturgy, it asks, how are you different now for having experienced that? We are wildly different now as communities. We are wildly different now than we were in January of 2020. We can't change that. And it's not a detriment to us if we pay attention, right? If we, if we can pay attention to the notion of remembering. And I think storytelling has massive potential for intentional remembering of our communities, whether they're worshiping communities or neighborhoods or nonprofits or extended families. The craft and the practice of storytelling has so much potential for this next phase of whatever our communities look like. And I think when I, when I talk to worshiping communities or small groups or whatever, organizations about this, um, about the power of storytelling for organizations, uh, two, two things always get brought up as pushback, right? As reasons why this won't work. Um, one is that I don't have any stories. Well, bullshit. Can I say that? No. Baloney. Baloney, you, don't, you have stories. <laughs> Uh, you can, I have won storytelling competitions with really like wild epic tales that uh, I would never have dreamed would ever happen to me. Those are the kinds of things that make people say, well, I don't have any stories. I have also won storytelling competitions with the most mundane happenings of my life. It's not the story that you have, right? It's how you craft it. Um, and that's the thing that you can learn. That's the thing that we can learn together, right? There are books and courses and workshops on, on how to craft story. This is something that we can practice. It's not something that we think about practicing. It's not something that we think about as a skill, either individually or collectively, but it's really valuable, and we can learn to do this. Um, that, that was the second one, right? That, well, I don't know how to do it. it it's okay. Um, when we, when we say things like, I don't have any stories, I, I also want to invite us to think about the stories that might not be ours in particular, but the stories that we see happening in the communities of which we are a part. Um, in a congregation as big as this, uh, I imagine that, that lots of people, even, when, even in the before times, right, in January of 2020, lots of people didn't even see each other, right, because there's, there's different services across different times. Um, but there are little things happening here and there that I might notice and I might think that's really cool, but I only tell one person over here. Or maybe I don't tell anyone at all. I just keep it to myself and think, well, wasn't that nice? Um, 
what would it do if we, if we actually told those stories in an intentional way uh, to remember our community and remind us of sort of the, the prophets and the disciples in our midst, right? Um, I can think of a few examples from, from previous calls that I've been in. Uh, I was in a, a congregation where we had, a, we had to raise money for a new roof and it was on an emergency basis. <laughs> like all of a sudden it was raining in the sanctuary. So we needed a whole lot of money really fast and we really didn't have it. Uh, but Noah, who is four years old, was four years old at the time, he brought $8. Right? Noah brought $8. And when he gave his $8, he, there's a, there was a part of the window on the second floor where you could see the roof of the first floor portion of the building. He wanted to see which part his $8 was going to fix. He wanted to see his part of the roof because this was his church and this was his building and it was his roof and these are his $8, right? Tell that story. Because I'm sitting over here thinking, well, I only have $100 or $500 and that's just a drop in the bucket compared to this thing that we need, so why even bother? But here's Noah who's four years old and he's got $8, right? Tell that story. Um, I'm thinking about another time when we were having dinner church and the, the whole hall was set uh, with round tables for dinner church and each table had a lasagna on it and a salad on it and a pitcher of water. Um, and we were ready to go and then right before worship we realized that we had way too many people. Uh, we had to set up all these extra tables all, all of a sudden but we didn't have any lasagna. So like dinner church over here and just smells like dinner church over here. Like you can't do that, you know? But we were out of food. Except that the people sitting at the tables with the lasagna didn't actually need all of that lasagna. And so they took what they needed. They didn't even skimp on it. They took what they needed and then they brought it over to these other tables. And in the end, the people who needed seconds got seconds. And there was still enough left to package up for the shut-ins. And of course, the scripture reading for that night was the feeding of the 5,000, because of course it was. Um, tell that story, <laughs> right? Tell it to the people who weren't there that night. Tell it to the people who were there and just didn't realize what was happening. Tell that story. Um, so I think part of, part of the issue here is our, our collective imagination is, is kind of crusty. Like, we're not good at saying, hey, this, this is a story that matters just as much as these stories matter. This is a story about our community that reminds us who we are uh, and helps us to remember together. So, so, yeah, I just think it's really important. And I think that we are on this, this precipice of figuring out what happens next right, of figuring out what it looks like on the other side of this. And again, we are not coming through this unscathed. We are not, we are not going to slide back into January of 2020. So whenever this is done, um, and starting now, I would say, right, starting now as we, as we look ahead to that, uh, we got to figure out what it looks like uh, to remember as a community. The word liturgy uh, literally means work of the people, so, so the last thing I want to leave you with is if, if you think I'm only uh, saying this to the people who are in leadership positions, either sitting here or on, online, uh, this, is, this is not just the work of the people in leadership positions, right? This is, this is everybody's work. This is the work of the people. Um, and if you are thinking to yourself, with all the training in the world, I will never 
I will never. <laughs> That's okay too. Um, because those five storytellers on that stage in Boston, uh, there, there would have been none of this magical, like, human energy in that room if the audience hadn't been there. And when I was on that stage, uh, that first Moth Grand Slam, telling that story uh, to this group of people, none of whom were in the Philippines on 9-11, I'm quite sure of it, right? But there was still this human connection. It would not have existed if the people hadn't been sitting there in the audience. And so that is a role for you. Uh, if, if you are interested in story and are interested in this concept of remembering and of doing the work of the people, of doing this liturgy together, uh, but this is not the role for you, there's a place for you in this too, right? There's a place for everyone in this. Uh, because remembering our communities on the other side of all of this will absolutely be the work of the people. Thank you, Andrea. That was amazing. And as you talked about the five different parts of a ritual and imagining, um, hasn't she just done that for us? <laughs> Are our minds not spinning with imagination of maybe where is our sense of call, but also our stories and the stories around us that are connecting us with others because there is still such a deep need for human connection and that remembering. Um, and I knew you were speaking truth. Um, those of you who didn't get to sit next to Stephanie Anderson, she makes noises. <laughs> There's a speaker that's really good. And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you could just the, the agreeing with it. It was just knowing that we were hearing truth spoken. And that that is a sense that um, hearing anyone's truth to us as well. And so I appreciated that. And uh, with my dad being a UCC pastor, um, one of their uh, logos for a really long time is that God is still speaking. And that's what I thought of when you kept pointing to this Bible. And it's like, those were stories, but there are still stories that are sacred, that are happening every single moment of every single day. And how fun it is when we can remind each other um, of those stories. So again, thank you to Andrea. Thank you for everyone who came. Uh, we are going to take a couple minutes, just stretch. And then for those who want to stay, we'll have kind of a shortened table talk to just ask any questions and have a little time together afterwards. But for those of you who are online, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you again next week. We are so delighted to have Joe Davis with us. Um, we've had him here before, his poetry slams, his uh, spoken word. He is just a uh, um, magical and mystical with his use of the language and of bringing stories to life in a new way. So it will uh, be an event again not to be missed. So we hope to see you back then. Were there any other announcements, Stephanie, I'm missing? Nope. I guess I'm supposed to say go in peace, but I want to say stay in peace as we keep serving the Lord. Thanks be to God.